Welcome to my podcast, In the Know. My series of interviews with amazing people doing amazing things as I travel around the world of no-tell. This time on In the Know, I have Abdur Chowdhury, who was the founder of a company that created the first search for Twitter and ended up as the chief scientist there through a really interesting period of huge growth and massive responsibility. We talk about the challenges of social media and about his new company, which kind of does the opposite. Hello and welcome to In the Know, Abdur. Hey, how's it going? It's amazing to have you. I am really appreciative that you um, want to talk about, well, that you want to be trending here on our series. Yeah, I'm excited to be here. Uh, <laughs> where should we start? Well, I think a cool place to start would be exactly that word. I mean, I don't know how often you have to explain the creation of trending, but we'll use that to get a little bit under the covers on where you came from and where you got to and where you're going. You really don't remember the first time you heard the word trending? You just remember repeating it and saying, this is going to be important? I don't actually remember where we came up with the word trending, but I can tell you how it came about. We had started a company called Samize after I'd left AOL. And, uh, you know, being a prior academic, I thought it was interesting to build technology that you thought was going to be important. And so at the time, we were looking around and search engines were pretty slow. Even Twitter was pretty slow. Twitter was extremely slow. But this was way before Twitter when I was back at AOL. And like at those times, like just to like update the Google index would take four or five months. And so we had kind of this like concept that like more and more people were publishing on the web and that real-time search engines would be an important piece of technology. And so we were like, okay, well, if people are publishing more and more, then what else do you need? And then you kind of need a couple other things. One, you need some kind of summarization technology because you can't read it all. And then the third thing we thought was you need to kind of understand people's opinions. So we built a sentiment engine. We kind of built a bunch of failed products along the way, you know, from review search. So the minute anyone published a review on the internet, you could find it. We did a bunch of sentiment analysis and summarization so you could see what people felt about things. And then one day our current CEO, Jay, was like, you know, we really should point this real-time search engine at Twitter because, A, it's god-awful to, like, try to find anything there. And there had been a couple other companies that had tried them, and none of them really had really good search technology. And so we're like, okay, that sounds interesting, and it would be really interesting to see what everyone's talking about. Talk to me about and when so, you started Samize, though. You had left AOL and you were wanting to do like a faster real-time search. What was the environment of the time? What year was well, it? 2006. Samize ends up being one of the great Betaworks investments, uh, Betaworks being actually, the investor and incubator from New York, right? And were you guys in well, New York? Actually, it was pre-Betaworks. Oh, my God. It wasn't even a Betaworks investment. We had talked to Union Square Ventures and they're like, hey, I don't know if you guys ran into this guy, John. Forthwick used to be at AOL. He's now at, oh my goodness, the company was like Photo, Photolog or something Photolog. like that. Photolog. Mm -hmm. And uh, it was a New York company. And we went and pitched him and he was like, you know, I don't know, but I think this is a really interesting idea. I'm going to invest into the company. And he was one of our smallest investors, but he ended up being one of our uh, biggest helpers and most active investors in terms of like helping us, giving us good guidance and how to like navigate the world. And later on, he ended up starting Betaworks 
and then the surmise investment moved into beta work. Oh, amazing. So it's like a co-creation story for him anyway, where he was doing angel investing and it sort of leads him to creating Betaworks. Yeah. So you're doing your closer to real-time search for a faster moving web than Google had contemplated. And you decided yeah. to point it at Twitter because that's the perhaps the fastest moving part of the web at that point. Yeah, it really was. And uh, it's interesting enough, I was uh, leaving D.C. to go to New York to tell John that we had decided to stop working on the review and the blog search engine and focus on Twitter. And on the way up, uh, our CEO had asked me, he's like, what do people even talk about on Twitter? And every once in a while in your life, someone asks us, you know, really simple question, but it's incredibly insightful. And so I was like, you know, that's a great question. I don't know really what people are talking about. So on the way up to New York, I downloaded like the whole corpus of tweets at the time, which wasn't that big. Sit on my oh, that's unbelievable. Top. You downloaded all of Twitter. <laughs> kind of crazy. <laughs> uh, now not possible. But at that time, totally possible. And so I built what I call an expected versus observed model. And basically what that says is, do I expect people to talk about this thing this much or more? You had like a corpus from Twitter and you had another one? Yeah, basically the other corpus was Wikipedia pages and reviews. So you can I had this corpus of people talking about uh, companies, products, places, things. And you knew how often they talked about them and how often in the English language the word the is, you know, really unremarkable. And then I built a small entity extractor at the time on the way up that pulled out interesting people, places, and things, and then modeled that against what I expected people to talk about. And it was kind of interesting because all of a sudden I started seeing London, Paris. I think it was Milan. And I was like, why are people talking about these cities? And so then I pulled up the tweets and I realized what I was watching was the Olympic torch runner running through Europe. And each one of these cities was getting named more as they were talking about the, the torch runner running through those cities. Oh, that's amazing. That was kind of the, the birth of trends where I was like, oh, wow, now we can pull out the things people are talking about not necessarily news, but things people are interested in. And so as we launched the search engine, we wanted to show people, hey, look, here are all the interesting conversations that people are talking about that you probably may or may not know. And that was the birth of trends on that train ride. There at the creation. Did you call it trends? I think we did call it trends. <laughs> I think I was probably like an occasional surmise visitor. And you were showing dashboardy kind of things about like what's going on. Was it something in that ballpark? Yeah, we did. And like how we, people felt about it. I'll never forget like, you know, when we first uh, had been introduced to um, the Twitter guys through John Borthwick. And uh, we had gone from, I think the first day we launched the search engine, it was about 250 queries that day to I think over a million queries a day within the next six weeks. We went out to meet, you know, Ev and Biz and Jack, and we're kind of sitting around and Ev's like, well, what do people think about Twitter? What's the sentiment right now? And it came back wretched, horrible. Uh, and I'm like, you know, very embarrassed. And so I'm like, you know, I'm sorry, there's probably a bug in the engine. You know, who knows? Like sentiment's a very difficult problem, uh, especially on text and especially on text that's only 140 characters. And I was like, no, it seems about right. And uh, we kind of realized then at that point that Twitter had been down for the last four hours. 
Uh-huh. People you, were you crawling Twitter sentiment or broader sentiment when you were? At, for that engine and that demo was uh, just Twitter. Oh, wow. You know, the sentiment. And, and that was the critical period in the life of Twitter because, demo. I mean, I think in a way, I mean, the fail whale is something that folks who've been around would remember. And it was yeah. a really critical time in the success of that business to get across that. And I think, in, in you know, in a way, the, the surmise is famous to those of us who are closer for the deal that comes to pass and re-engineering Twitter to be a real-time and stable always up system. Is that yeah summary yeah. in the ballpark? It was pretty close. I'll never forget uh, when we merged the two companies, there were 12 of them and six of us. And uh, Greg, my co-founder, became their director of engineering. And we had to, WWDC was coming out in the new iPhone. And so we had to like push a lot of traffic on the search just to keep like that side of the, the service up. It was, oh, wow. it was some rough. So day. you were fiddling with people's traffic and just putting it on your platform so they could see uh, just essentially like tweets, stuff. but it's trying to result. get people like to see and feel like the engine was still up. Amazing. I think Greg really should take a lot of the credit there. He worked pretty hard with the engineering group to bring people around and really care about uptime and stability and accountability. And as far as you've come at that moment, I guess you're on the first day, 36 people at Twitter. So 30, you go like a lot so 18 or 19 at that point with six of oh, us wow. and 12 of them. And you go a lot further together. But yeah, we spent the, almost the next four years together. I went from that to, I think when I left, it was about 950 people. That's incredible. I mean, like when you had walked out of AOL, it was already a giant company. Maybe it was a little past the peak of its powers. And you rode from 18 to 900, 30 times more. I mean, talk to me. Tell me about this experience. I, very few would would have any inkling it was uh, outside I mean, in a rocket ship. Yeah, I mean, I didn't like it. Mostly not because it wasn't the most amazing experience, but it was a rocket ship and you didn't have the time to stop and smell the flowers. We had some weeks of 100% growth. We ran out of power in database, or in data centers. We ran out of space in a data center. We ran out of integers in a database. Like... Oh my God. You sound like really cool engineering problems, but you know, when you're in Rome and it's on fire, it's not all that fun. Wow. It was just demand. But it was just like user traction was just going bananas. It was uh, one of those perfect storms. Like things would kind of calm down, and then all of a sudden there was a plane crash in the Hudson River, and you know, someone's riding the ferry, and of course they take a photo of it, and uh, it's on Twitter, and then it goes into trends, and then it goes crazy. And then you realize that kind of real-time event uh, reporting is no longer the job of uh, news organizations, but it's like the tool of one of these kinds of social media engines. There's no way like a CNN or anyone could go hire, you know, 100 million reporters and put them all over the planet, just kind of like observing things and reporting on it. And so Twitter became really, really influential in all these kinds of events. We'll go back to trends quickly. Like there was uh, the next Thanksgiving, I was sitting there and I would always check trends to make sure there wasn't something crazy going on. And it's like early Thanksgiving morning in D.C. And um, I see Mumbai, what's going on in Mumbai, all these things trending about Mumbai. And of course, I think uh, there's a bug in the engine and there's some problem. And then I go on and you see that there's oh, no. bombings in Mumbai. And then you realize that this kind of trending in real time reporting and observation that people have of what's going on and how all of a sudden we can quickly focus attention with one of these engines becomes a very powerful tool that 
I think is good and a lot of times is useful and then every once in a while not so useful. Yeah, I wonder. I mean, but, uh, the the present is a number of years since, and and you saw it. The you know, in some of these first experiences where it just like happened for the first time, is the present what you saw coming? No, not at all. Not at all. Mostly, we thought it was like an incredible like news aggregator and a tool that turned you into like having superpowers. You were just incredibly more aware of like the world and what was going on in your surroundings. Like we yeah. moved trends to local trends so you could like figure out what was going on in your community. And I remember Ab going, I don't know, is this local trends even worth it? And I was like, <laughs> I don't know, let's look at it. And all of a sudden it was like the Bay Bridge. And I was like, why are people looking at the Bay Bridge? And it turns out one of the cables had fallen and fell in the middle of it. And someone was taking pictures of it at that moment. And you just all of a sudden had these superpowers that you were aware of what was going on in the world around you and people were talking about. In a way, it's like actualizing the original vision of surmise. If um, Google helps you get the world's information that was published you know, a week or a month ago, this is telling you what's happening now. You're getting information and it's now and it's nearby by this spot in your story. Yeah. But then uh, trending like takes another direction, right? Like at the moment we live in now, trending is and not only trending, but you know, all the different algorithms that suggest what you might want to look at it's, yeah well, now this other dimension like, yeah now trending is everyone's like oh look i'm going to show you what i want you to drive traffic to like the highest like page viewed page on my website i'm going to say that that's trending right now and you should watch it mm. and trending really wasn't about like what's the most popular thing like you know everyone's talking about apple every day or samsung or you know take your favorite topic Trending really is about telling me what I should know about that is not obvious to me because it's not expected. And so most of the trending algorithms and things that people talk about now, it's just what's most popular. I see. And it's ended up being just like the charts and not the diff, like what's right. interesting. And also the I mean, gaming, I, right? I mean, like when you say someone's wanting to show you the most popular thing, that, that would be the platforms and the infrastructure. But I guess the other part of it is all these people have learned to game it. And well, I mean, the, I spent group a up. lot of time. I spent a lot of time working on the algorithms to stop the gaming. You know, I built some of the first spam systems at Twitter. And you can kind of think about like all these things as people are vying for your attention. They can either buy ads or they can game a system to get your attention. And once you build something like trends or anything in which you can start to get people's attention by gaming it, then they're going to start gaming it. And so then you have to figure out, okay, what are they doing? You know, you see 10,000 accounts all tweeting the same thing. You know that someone, the probability of 10,000 people typing in the same exact sentence at the same moment is pretty low. And then you can start doing graph analysis and then all kinds of other analysis figure out. Like, do know, they know each person. other? Right. Do they know each other? Is this just one little click trying to play this game? And the algorithms get more and more complex. As you observe so, yeah. the issues of the day, and I don't mean specifically Twitter, I'm sure you have many friends and a lot of your code's probably still running, but just across the different big platforms. Do you have like a new idea or like a disappointed perspective where you're like, oh, come on, guys? Like, I mean, because this is like one of the dominant questions of the present age, right? I mean, the, the YouTube black holes or things getting spread on WhatsApp and not all of them are algorithmic, but they are platforms that create the spread of ideas, which we once thought was just absolutely good, has no nothing to qualify there. And now we worry sometimes when things spread. I mean, I'm going to say the most unpopular thing. They are stuck in a rock in a hard place and fighting a really hard problem. 
There is no simple answer. Yeah, they could go figure out a lot of the gaming people are doing to like game their platforms, and they do often. But the disinformation and the crazy points of view, they built a platform in which those things can exist. And now there's people using it to actually do harmful things. And unfortunately, they're not going to want to say it, but they probably do need some kind of legislation that helps them regulate the industry. Is there a way that society came up and said, hey, screaming fire in a crowded theater is wrong? You have freedom of rights to talk about whatever you want to. But this is actually causing harm. And without like real like legislation around that like defines what that is and how that game is played, I think that each one of these companies are kind of playing whack-a-mole and unsure what to do. And it's a bigger problem than any one of those companies can tackle by themselves. Most workspaces today are vying for millennial attention by creating unlimited beer and ping pong tables. Those are all great things to do. Maybe at work, maybe not at work, but it's completely missing the point, which is that our minds are increasingly taken up by bullshit and by media that wants us rather than wants to give to us. And at work, in order to expand our creativity, to focus our minds, there are a number of hacks that we can introduce in addition to beer and ping pong like meditation, like reading Simon Sinek, Seth Godin. But that all aside, it's really about the space that we occupy. So if we're in a cluttered space, our mind is often cluttered. That aside, having a space that is diverse as the people are, that is comfortable, that is easily movable, that can be constructed and reconstructed and deconstructed in the same amounts of time, where you're surrounded by other people that are enjoying that type of space is a pretty cool thing. If the workspace can be a definite workspace, but a good workspace, then you're in business. So this podcast is brought to you by Notel. Thanks for listening. Attention. I guess attention has been a big theme for you. At a certain point, I guess maybe 2016, 2015, you started working on the company that you have been building since then? Yeah, well, I, before that, I left Twitter and I pretty much thought I was out of technology. I hated it all. We uh, started an elementary school here in San Francisco. Altivist. Uh, K- yeah, K through eight, focused on STEM or STEAM education because we didn't want to forget the art. Small classroom sizes so people could uh, focus on teaching and figuring out how each student learned. Uh, I feel pretty good. We're now a decade into that. 300 kids almost, two campuses. But about a few years into that, Eric, my PhD little brother, our first employee at Surmise, he convinced me I didn't hate technology. I was just kind of burnt out. In hindsight, he was right. I mean, it was a wild ride at at Twitter, and I think you certainly deserved a couple years. And and, I mean, to build schools that might be better, that reach new people, worthwhile. What did he convince you you to work on? It was more like this hypothesis, you know, again, everyone's walking around with phones, like, should we look at something there? Like every entrepreneur, you say, okay, well, let me start looking in an area and start digging around. Ultimately, we realized that we love building thing, technology that impacts people's lives. The thing that got me out of academia was that I'd write a paper and 20 people would reference it. Or when I went to AOL, I could launch a system and a million people used it. And so something about using building technology that makes people's lives better in any kind of way or brings them closer together uh, really resonated with both of us.
we had been running. And that got you to picture frames. Yeah, oddly it did. And mostly we were building these small social networks in which we thought were really interesting. If you look at like the social network of like your family or friends, they're pretty stable units. The reason they don't catch on on the internet is that they're, they're small graphs. They're, you know, a random graph that's lightly connected and they don't connect to everything. So you and your friends don't connect to every other set of you friends in the, in the world. Well, they do, but it's just so many degrees of freedom away that it just doesn't work. You keep it in a uh, kind of that, confined circle. You don't get like viral breakout. So if you and just, me, let's say, are best buddies and we make ourselves a social network, we're probably not going to add 30 new groups every week. We're just we're mostly not. talking to each other. Yeah, we're just talking to each other. And that's great. And so like every time we sat down and thought of an idea in that area, they all just kind of fell apart because ultimately those businesses become an ad platform. You know, you're like your Twitter, Facebook, Instagram, you know, whatever it is, it's going to build a bunch of eyeballs and get them on there. And then it's going to sell ads. And your data and your attention. I mean, this is the sort of, this is the sin you were trying to work off from uh, the first huge business you built. Yeah. I'm sorry. (laughs) Um, I mean, you didn't intend it. Yeah. Well, you know, it's at many points through that history would be like, well, we can do something else other than ads. And like, you're like, well, no one else has figured anything else out. Why do we mm-hmm. think we're the only super geniuses? Like, you know, a lot of people have been thinking about this a long time and it keeps coming back to ads. But anyway, uh, one day. So you Eric go way smaller, way more personal, way more private. Yeah, mostly, you know, you start to get, I think after you've been on a lot of these networks for a while, you start pulling back on a lot of the personal stuff. You realize that, it's not worth it to get super personal about stuff and keep it very light and, you know, maybe just like, here's a great article about something or a cool picture or right. leave it very light. Too many ways that it can go awry. But still, something about these family networks is really interesting and personal. And uh, one day, Eric was like, hey, I bought this digital picture frame for my mom and it really sucked. And I was like, so did I. It really sucked but we're not going to do hardware, so leave me alone. A couple months later, his wife's an industrial designer, and she was like, hey, look, I used to work for this guy. He's just finishing up, you know, uh, working on the Peloton bike. He's really into digital picture frames. The three of you should talk. And so we sat down, the three of us, and talked for a few days and realized that, one, this became a really big uh, breakout category back in the uh, like between 2006 and 2010, where it got to about 15% of households in the United States. Oh, wow. Uh, so these the, were the not connected ones where you stick like a memory card in the there not, for your grandparents. Exactly. You had to like take a picture on your you know, digital camera and then you pulled out an SD card, you ran over to your computer, you edited them down, and then you told it, took out another SD card and you put them in there. And we're like, well, what's changed? And you're like, oh, wow, well, now households have Wi-Fi. You know, there's these great Android devices, so we don't have to build PCB boards and all this other stuff. There's amazing iPads out there, so there's great display technology today. Cameras are now connected, so you don't have to, like, pull out SD cards. We call them phones nowadays instead of cameras. People are taking tons of photos, and we're like, wow, we really took all this stuff and applied a bunch of the new machine vision stuff. We could really build a family network around a device. And if we built a family network around a device, that means people were paying for the device and we wouldn't have to like try to build an ad network later. I mean, that machine network is over and above the first few things you listed. It finds people's faces in there? 
Yeah, we built a bunch of machine vision, mostly because like curating photos is really hard. So if you think about the problems, like taking photos is really easy. We all love doing that. But then curating them down or sending the photo that you took of like my sister-in-law to her is really hard because I just get... Well, and I also take a lot of bad photos and I mean, I get around to... Take a lot of bad photos. Yeah. Exactly. And duplicate photos. You took like four takes of it before you were happy. So there's lots of like lightweight, I call lightweight machine vision tasks that can be done with computers these days. And so we spent a few years and built all around, you know, face identification, face clustering that's kind of agnostic to the age of a person, blur detection, light detection, stuff like that. So you could say, okay, these are all duplicates and this one's not blurry. So let's pick that one. And now I can say if there's a picture of my daughter, just send it to my parents and I don't have to really think about it if I take it or my wife takes it. I mean, in Uh, theory, you have investigated whether all these other physical device platforms could be endpoints for all this amazing software you've built. Yeah, they could eventually. But then you have to think about what's the business model behind that and how does that play out and how do users not become the product instead of the recipient of the technology. So this is really foundational for you. This is mission. It's mission in a way of like, I think like people should have like an opinion and an opinion of why they're building something and what's right and what's wrong. I think you would be really creeped out if I took all your photos and started selling information about you. But if <laughs> yeah, I or auto photos, Yeah. Right. Or just did like something like sold them to people, just sold the information about you. But I don't think you're creeped out if I built a bunch of machine vision that allowed you to figure out the duplicates and filtered those out and only put the other ones up on your picture frame into your house. Like, it's really like this. We have to have this ethical question of like, is this technology helping me or is it going to be used against me in the future? As a product and engineering led founder, as we're talking, like so much of it at the core is like a technical problem, technical solution trying to get to some bigger answer that's valuable to people. And here you are working on this one. It's actually the opposite of all that. I mean, I want to build technology that I wake up and I just kind of smile at, and then I move on with my life. All the products that are built right now, because they're ad engines, what they need to do is hit all your endorphins that cause you to want to go back to the thing and look at it. So you're like, did someone like my post? Did they retweet it? What'd they do with it? Did they comment on it? And the reason the engine has to hit all those endorphins and bring you back is because they need to be selling ad inventory. And if you're not there to look at that screen, then they can't sell that ad inventory. And if you're not there doing these interactions with it, they don't know how to target you for better ads. And so I think you have to like step back and say, I'm going to build something 100% different, something that I've already paid for. I don't have to worry. I'm not the product. And it's just going to make me smile and not ask any more of me in my life. Who else out there is a like-minded fellow traveler? Who else is on this crusade with you that you think about in in our community, the tech community, or in others? You know, that's a really good question. I have not thought very deeply about because I've been so focused on building this thing. I mean, you might think that the Apple people are like, they would have nodded yes to everything. You know, Apple's a good example where they are thinking about the user and their privacy and the privacy of their data and how do they like build an ecosystem that's not super creepy and not going to be exploited. So that's a good example. I do you feel Apple that product. your fellow travelers in uh, the San Francisco community, do you, do you meet like-minded people often or do you 
often meet some alum of a uh, Facebook or something who's like, yeah, you're kind of right up to a point. You know, oddly, San Francisco has changed in which now most of the founders are all looking at SaaS businesses and trying to build something in that space, which for me is not personally gratifying. Oh, they just switched from like, personal and, you know, consumer. Yeah, yeah they're like, hey, look, I'm going to build this, you know, data analytics company. And you're like, yeah, no, I've done that. It's kind of boring. Why don't you build <laughs> something that, like, you know, at least brings joy to your own life every day. It's inspiring the way you think about it. Let's imagine we get the right election result and the FCC or the FTC calls you in and, and they say, hey, Abderman, you've been thinking about this longer, more deeply, with more personal conviction and commitment than virtually anyone. What should we ask companies to do? What is the standard we should hold them to? I think it, uh, it depends on the industry, clearly. The biggest problem right now is that most of these services are free and people are very excited and do not want to pay for them. And when people make the choice of saying, hey, look, I don't want to pay for them, then the in fundamentally someone's got to pay for all those engineers and all those servers and all that stuff. Then the question comes, how do you pay for this? And the only answer that's ever been derived at that point is advertising. And the moment we're going to go down that path, that means I'm going to be selling your attention and I need to know more about you so I can be more effective at doing that job. And I would ask the question of like, are people willing to give up one of these services and actually pay them five bucks a month? Hmm. Yeah. I don't know. What do I know? Yeah. <laughs> I think you know a lot. I think you know so much and you've been thinking so deeply on all this is an unexpected and interesting, such deep direction about technology ethics, good societal impact, and what it means for how we should run our innovation engine in America and around the world. I appreciate so much, Abdur, you making time to talk with me on In the Know. Where can we get some Aura Frames? Should we just go to AuraFrames.com, A-U-R-A, Frames? Yeah, Aura Frames, uh, Bloomingdale's, Best Buy. I think we're in about 500 different stores at this point. Uh, oh, hopefully wow. we'll be in a couple thousand by the end of the year. That's amazing. What does it cost yeah. to buy a frame? I guess most people must have to buy more than one to make it really work for them. No. Uh, well, here I like to say, you know, we're uh, we're selling drugs here. You'll buy one for yourself and you'll be like, this is awesome. And then you'll buy one for your parents. And then your siblings will start connecting and sending photos to it. And then they'll buy them. And mm -hmm. then it'll slowly spread to your whole family. So this is the year from, that we should expect them to start popping up at uh, at friends' everywhere. houses. Man. Yeah, they're from two hundred to four hundred bucks. They look pretty nice, and they they fit into a lot of decors. I think we're the first person who tried to make consumer electronics out of solid walnut. Amazing, um, which was very difficult. I think the last time someone tried Maybe that was radios or something in the nineteen thirties. But I can attest they are very beautiful, and um, I think we can all be looking after them this year. Cool. Thank you. Can't wait to meet in person. Yeah, I hope we can make it happen. I am in SF often. Uh, Notel, I don't know, we have like maybe 50 buildings in SF. We run just lots wow. of offices for, you know, yeah. sort of bigger companies. Yeah. We're kind of an enterprise-oriented business, flexible workspace. Um, yeah. And, you know, different places around the world. And and actually, it's there, there are some funny parallels to what you were describing because unlike the public social media world, the office is also another place, a very private, personal, group-level interaction where some of this, like, you know, this sort of Facebook mantra is totally irrelevant. 
it's ironic that the Silicon Valley tribe has now shirked fixing the problem that social media has created and they've switched to SaaS, as you were sketching. That's quite interesting. But they're now working yeah. in the world of work where you cannot be ad supported, you know, like you're <laughs> the guys at the desk in your office. That's all going to be company stuff. Yeah. Yeah. Someone's going to be paying the money. That's good. Yeah. 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 That's true. Uh, well, yeah. really a pleasure. Thank you for making time. I will hey, look you up when I'm in SF sometime. And yeah. um, now that we're connected, we'll discover all the millions of other people with between John Borthwick and, and uh, Jack Dorsey oh, and whoever else we, we know in common. Yeah. Yeah. Well, you know, the larger network is connected. What do they call it? The six degrees of separation. Kevin Bacon. Yeah. Well, I think in your case and mine, I think it's exactly one hop. And there might be nine one different hop. people. Well, right. pleasure. Enjoy the rest of your afternoon. Bye. Thank you. Hey, listeners. Thanks for subscribing. Or thanks for just tuning in. A special request from me on this podcast that you are growing to love. Write a review please. A five-star review spreads the word and people will follow. Cheers. Thank you. And stay tuned for the next 30 episodes. I'm so excited. We've just passed a big milestone. It didn't take long. And all of a sudden we're up at 40 episodes of people telling us how to spread great ideas.